0: And we we'll look at your latest news this hour. Zimbabwe's ruling ZANU-PF party and the opposition MDC alliance have both called demonstrations in the capital Harare on Tuesday. According to NewZimbabwe.com, ZANU-PF has called for a solidarity march for its presidential candidate Emmerson Nangagwa. And the MDC, on the other hand, has called for a march to press for electoral reforms. Bloody clashes are feared as Anupiev's move to demonstrate on the same day as the MDC has angered the opposition. One of the alliance's co-principals, 10 Diabetes, says this is an attempt by ZANU-PF to frustrate them from genuinely demanding poor reforms. Zimbabweans are set to cast ballots on July 30 to choose a president, lawmakers and municipal councillors in the country's first election since longtime ruler Robert Mugabe was ousted last year. Meanwhile, the preparations for an election are likely going to affect school and education calendars forcing schools to close two weeks earlier. Already, the country school calendar has been affected with increased tensions, but experts say this could affect learning, especially for those with disabilities. Maxwell Rafa from the Education Coalition of Zimbabwe says elections mode has greatly affected the learning for children in the country.
1: Uh, As we are all aware that uh, currently there is a new curriculum whose syllabuses are being for the first time coming to their end of their summative evaluation this year. So there is no clear uh, understanding as to how much time uh, whether the syllabus will be complete by the time of the examination. And another delay by two weeks could also be fatal to the system given that these will be the first examinations uh, for ordinary level under the new curriculum and for the A level. So it's definitely going to have a, a, a huge impact unless or until the government then adds another two weeks into the third term or during the, the, the holidays.
0: Rescue work is resuming in Guatemala following Sunday's volcanic eruption. The fugue of spewed rocks, gas and ash into the sky. One settlement in its southern slope, El Rodeo, was buried. The BBC's Maria Elena Nevis has more.
2: The latest information is that 25 people are dead, 300 injured, and uh, 3,000 have been evacuated. There's also information that many people are unaccounted for. There's loads of small villages around in the volcano. So what they say is that these uh, pyroclastic flows, and there's been heavy rains in the the last few days. So they traveled very fast, so people didn't have time to escape their homes, and many were trapped inside their homes.
0: Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu embarks on a three-day European tour in Germany set to be dominated by strategic differences on Iran. The tour, which starts on Monday, comes as leaders attempt to rescue the nuclear deal after the United States' withdrawal. With partners in Germany, France and Britain still reeling from President Donald Trump's decision last month to exit the hard-fought 2015 accord, Netanyahu is expected to seek European cooperation on a still-to-be-determined Plan B. He will continue on to Paris for meetings with French President Emmanuel Macron and on Tuesday with Prime Minister Theresa May on Wednesday. And lastly, an opposition coalition in Ivory Coast has rejected any prospects of a third term for President Alison Otara. Watara came to power after a bloody five-month crisis in 2010 and 2011 and is now in his second term, which ends in 2020. Watara and his supporters say that under changes to the constitution in 2016, of which he himself was the architect, the starting point for presidential terms is now zero, that his two elections victories in 2010 and 2015 do not end. Count. The EDS is a coalition that gathers civil society groups as well as the Ivorian People's Party, the party of former President Lauren Bagbo. Channel African News, I'm Onilin Sinsin.
1: Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg and on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa, as well as on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Onel with Musani Matebula, as well as Mosiburi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Police in Mozambique kill nine suspected insurgents after 10 people were decapitated by suspected jihadists in the region last weekend. Kenya's president vows to reactivate the fight against graft while promoting national reconciliation. And in economics, mining company Emerson raises $8 million U.S. million by issuing new shares to develop a potash project in Morocco. In your sports, Serena Williams pulls out of the French Open, and again, this is Africa Digest. Starting off in Mozambique, police in Mozambique have killed nine insurgents in the country's far north after 10 people were decapitated by suspected jihadists in the region last weekend. Cabo Delgado province, uh, which is expected to become the center of the country's nascent natural gas industry after several promising discoveries have seen a number of deadly attacks by suspected radical Islamists since last October. According to Professor Andre Thomashausen, international law expert, high rates of youth unemployment in the region have contributed to the rise of violent extremism.
3: Well, this has been coming for a while, and the Mozambican government has been hiding it because they are scared that they could um, drive investors away or create panic. Sure. Um, it, it all commences with Kenya's enthusiasm in executing American anti-terrorism policies in Kenya. And in 2012, six years ago, um, they led an attack on a cleric, Mr. Rogo Mohammed, whom they believed to be a supporter of al-Shabaab fundamentalists in Somalia. And many of his followers, many of the young people that were studying in this church, they decided to flee. They fled into Tanzania, and um, after some time, uh, many of them crossed into Mozambique, the border, between Tanzania and Mozambique, there in the north, is very open. Uh, the local people trade, and they walk across the border. These young people, of course, have found it very, very difficult to uh, to settle down, to establish families, or any kind of normal life. They survive as hunters in the deep forests, and um, they they have been brutalized. They they kill with pangas, with big uh, cutting knives that you use normally to cut into the bush. Uh, they kill with uh, primitive uh, weapons with sticks, stones attached to them, or uh, knockberries, and they're very brutal. Um, This has been going on for for well over a year. One of their methods is to set fire to one of the cars in front of a police station in a small village. And when the policemen come running out of the building to see why the car is on fire, they're lying in an ambush and they try and kill as many as possible. They will then uh, hack off limbs, they will decapitate, and they will rearrange the body parts in terribly shocking and intimidating ways. The strategy is to spread. Terror. Now the
4: group is believed to also be responsible for a deadly attack last October on a police station and military post in the town of Mosimbo at a prayer. Now the attacks have raised fears that Islamist extremists are gaining a new foothold in Africa. Should we press panic buttons yet, Prof?
3: Um, yes, there is an escalation that is built into these situations because uh, the big politicians will normally not find the time to actually uh, address the issues which are the abysmal extreme poverty, extreme exclusion of entire provinces from any kind of services or, or modern life or progress, I think it is inevitable that uh, many of these young people who have nothing to lose, who, who are not integrated in society structures, that they will spread and uh, they may also spread south, they may find followers in the region, even in South Africa, although our Muslim population is a very peaceful one. When you have no hope, when you have no outlook on life, the young person, you may decide to become a rebel, a fighter, and uh, that way gain maybe some some respect by some people. Um, I don't believe in solutions by force. I don't think that just repression is going to solve the problem. The problem is much larger. The problem is that vulnerable communities need an economic basis to survive.
4: Do you think the Mozambican government is taking these insurgent attacks seriously?
3: They are taking the, them seriously. They have entered into an agreement with the founder and manager of one of um, the most feared and, and formidable mercenary uh, organizations. Uh, they used to be called Blackwater, they American, they're led by a former American Navy SEAL and a big supporter of the Trump campaign. Mr. Eric Prince, and they have given him a concession or a contract uh, to provide private security and anti-terrorism security in Mozambique. And he has been moving personnel to Mozambique, and he has acquired a number of patrol craft to provide maritime security. And this, too, is a great concern here in the region um, because we, I, I believe, most of our political parties and our political traditions, we don't really want uh, American mercenaries to start playing a, a very violent role in, in one of our member Tadak countries.
5: And
1: that was Professor Andre Thomashausen, international law expert, talking to Kumbero Munzerele. Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta has vowed to reactivate the fight against graft while promoting national reconciliation to enable him to achieve his Big Four agenda to transform the country. Now, Kenyatta says his government will take bold steps to eradicate corruption that has rocked the public service. The East African country has lately been rocked by graft scandals at the National Youth Service that has led to the loss of an estimated 90 million U.S. dollars through irregular expenditure and procurement and fraud. James Shimanyula reports.
6: Corruption has been endemic, or rather corruption has turned into what many observers in Kenya characterize as modern money cancer. What they mean is that uh, over the past, to be more specific, over the past 30 years, leadership in Kenya, be it starting from the Moy era, coming to kibaki era and coming to the current uh, leadership have always and have maintained the stance of saying we are going to eradicate corruption on paper that has worked 100% however when people are when people are arrested or to put it uh, probably rightly hundreds of arrests over the past three decades or 30 years or so have ended up in court only for the culprits or people being charged, being released either for lack of evidence, I mean concrete evidence to sustain conviction or surely investigations having been carried out. So the trend has been like that on and on
4: now do you think this current tempo in the fight against grafter will be maintained by president kenyatta or is it a temporary stance by kenyatta
6: the point is simple this time kenyatta has appointed a team a new team let me put it that way that has been instructed to make sure that all government officers public ser- servants and all that are in the public domain are actually scrutinize them to ensure that their past records are clean, if not clean, they're dropped, so that when investigations start, none of those guys will be spared. In short, the system is has adopted, people call it locally here as a new scientific uh, system of uh, detecting thieves, let's hope it will work
4: now senior officials at the national youth service as well as local entrepreneurs have been arrested over their involvement in the financial scam and will be arraigned in court sometimes this week did their arrests come as a surprise or were they expected
6: first of all i must say that they are <laughs> coming into court tomorrow tuesday to hear final ruling on their application for bail so that they can be free outside rather than inside the cells while attending their cases and they have hired some of the best brains in the country some specialists in uh, making you commit a crime and you, you come out of it those are some of the best lawyers we have All I can say in short is that this time, the people that were arrested were big fish, as they call them locally. Very senior officials that would have been protected by the government. The difference between now and in the past is that nobody came to to their aid. Like uh, the chief of the National Youth Service himself was arrested. Had it been in the past, he would not have been arrested. So in short, they are very serious. And I repeat again, I can assure you with your program, you'll come back to me and say, you said it. That is me, I said it. This time you will see heads roll and they'll roll as they march towards the courts and as the courts deliver objective judgments with the express purpose of sustaining a conviction and the convictions. Sorry, sustaining conviction and the convictions indeed are likely to be sustained and the jail jails are just waiting for them
4: now kenyatta's implementation of what is known as the big four agenda has been loaded across kenya as it addresses some of the big challenges uh, within the public service department is the big four agenda the remedy that kenya needs at the moment
6: kenya needs a Four agenda a program that has been rolled out though it's yet to take place desperately and thank god that Raina Odinga has joined uh, Uru Kenyatta in um, new unity and it's actually Odinga that was, uh, mo- uh, had mooted the idea of ensuring that uh, people can work, they get uh, affordable houses, they pay lower rent and all those uh, components that go with uh, the four agenda uh, that um, the program that uh, he has initiated so with the presence of uh, Raila Odinga to be honest with you I believe things will work in a different way towards success
1: and that was James Shimanyula our correspondent in Kenya talking to Kumberu Munzarere
7: Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. (laughs) You know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy.
6: And as long as we are deemed
8: to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice.
9: Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every saturday morning at 9am with repeats on sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on monday morning between 3 and 4 central african time 1000 african voices with me abu C see on channel africa the voice of the african renaissance broadcasting from an african perspective
1: Attacks on children were yet again on the spotlight today as we marked International Day of Innocent Children Victims of Aggression. Now, annually observed on the 4th of June, this day speaks to affirm the United Nations commitment to protecting the rights of children. Stopping all forms of violence against children, especially during armed conflicts, is of great concern today more than ever. Now, for more on the significance of this day and what it calls for, we are now joined on the line by James Elder of the United Nations Child Agency, UNICEF. James Elder, thank you very much for joining us on Africa Digest.
10: Thanks very much, Samara. Very very good to be here.
1: Now, James, let's first start off by reflecting briefly on how the day came about and what is its purpose.
10: Yeah, look, I think the, the purpose of the day, uh, unfortunately now more um, relevant than, than many years gone by, is just mm-hmm. to acknowledge that the pain suffered by kids throughout the world who are victims of conflict, of physical, of mental, emotional abuse, of so we all say, you know, childhood is this precious time and... and um, wouldn't we all like to get it back, but no matter how difficult people's childhoods were, very few of, of, of us you know, speaking or, or your audience hmm. have endured the type of childhood that we're referring to um, around a day like this. Those children in Syria, in Yemen, in South Sudan, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, it just goes on and on. Um, So, yes, the day did come around 35 years ago when the UN was appalled around acts of violence against Palestinian Lebanese children. Of course, it has extended because of those so many countries I listed then. It really is to try and remind people about the consequences of war on those who've got absolutely nothing to do with it, Mm. but suffer the most, which is children.
1: Now, UNICEF is one of the organizations expressing deep concerns around the situations of millions of children globally. Now, what's your assessment around the situation of the world's children and efforts to protect them? It's a funny
10: time, more. On one hand, you know, children are, you know, poverty rates and so on are improving around the world. Mm. On another, right now, children being caught in the front line, we haven't seen it for decades. I mean, with, really with little remorse and even less accountabilities, people involved in these conflict, conflicts continue to basically blatantly disregard one of the most basic rules of war and there are rules of war and one of them is you protect children so what we're seeing in all those countries i've mentioned is that no method of warfare is off limits no matter how deadly it is for kids we've got yeah. indiscriminate attacks on schools and hospitals abductions rapes, child recruitment abuse in detention um on and on it goes and of course it's really important to remember that it's very easy to get to get dumbed down because the numbers are so vast. You know, mm. I can tell you about in South Sudan, 20,000 kids who are tonight are going to be sleeping in, as, as child soldiers, or in, in Syria, the 5 million who who've become refugees, or in Yemen, the millions who are at risk of starvation, the numbers become over overbearing. But what I see daily in my travels, be it in Somalia or be it in South Sudan, is that these are kids and they've got parents desperately doing everything they can to protect them True. but the forces are just too great uh, against them and that's why you need you need other governments you need mums and dads who are in you know better positions in other countries to, to speak out that's really the only way if humanity is going to improve that you know if we can't defend our most vulnerable children in these countries then I think um, you know, it's, it's a time for some pretty sad reflection.
1: Now James it's all good and well for us on the outside, you know, to come in and try to help. But do we have any people who have gone through this who are part of, you know, the fight to try and get these children out of these situations?
10: Yeah, lots, hey. I mean, I can think of a a young guy, Moses, I met very recently in the last couple of months in
11: South Mm -hmm. Sudan,
10: who was a child soldier, who went through unspeakable things, who was, you know, forced to to go back into a a village where he lived and, and fire upon what would have been, you know, former um, neighbours, friends mm, and so mm. on, and was deeply scarred and has received great support and psychological support by organisations like UNICEF and the many others on the ground, those those South Sudanese organisations that are doing their best against huge odds to, to help their kids. And, and he's one example who now all he wants to do is try and, you know, give psychological support, work in mm. camps, work with people, um, and try and help those young people who've sort of I- experienced the same horrors the same proximity to warfare as he had so i think time and again we look to the outside world we look to big donors we look to powerful countries like south africa and that's right because they have huge influence and huge budgets and those things matter But we must never forget that those people in the countries affected they are the first ones usually trying to do something about it but every now and then i think we have to just appreciate that that they need a leg up they need that most basic opportunity because the severity of their situation is just just too much for any for any person no matter how resolute to kind of um to get through
1: james thank you very much for that now lastly a key message from unicef in terms of what needs to be done for children uh to be protected at all times especially during warfare what what would you say about that well
10: i think you're dead right there the first thing is you know children need peace and protection at all yes. times i mean i'm I work in communications. I'm aware that language is both powerful and sometimes useless. But at the end of the day, we have rules of war. We have international humanitarian law around attacking civilians, schools, hospitals, recruiting kids. And I think denying humanitarian assistance is a huge one. I think the key thing is when conflict breaks out, these rules need to be respected. And when they're not, Those who break them have to be held account. We need to see that time and again, no matter what country it's in, if you break those rules around children or hospitals or getting humanitarian aid to people, you must be held held to account. And then we might see some change. Um, So, yeah, I mean, simply enough is enough. We need to stop attacks on children. But when we hold those people in power who have the power to prevent it and choose not to,
11: Mm -hmm. when we
10: hold them to account, then hopefully we will see the change we need for, as I say, those most vulnerable people, kids.
1: James, thank you so much for joining us and uh, I really do hope that we, we actually see the change that you guys are trying to instill as UNICEF. And that was James Alda of the United Nations Children's Fund on the line from Nairobi in Kenya. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is under pressure to deliver on a promise to ban pit latrines in government schools. It follows the deaths of at least two children. The Education Department recently finalized a report on all state schools that still use pit latrines. It is now up to the President to come up with a plan of action. But communities want change to happen fast. The BBC's Pumza Fihlani visited the community of the first victim in the rural province of Limpopo.
12: We're in Chibeng village outside Bulukwani. It's a poor community, but the people here take pride in being able to send their children to school. They see it as a way out of poverty. But for one family, the dream of a better life ended when their son died in school. News of Michael Gomape's death has changed life in schools here. It's break time, and that means a bathroom break. Scores of six-year-olds are walking past me, holding hands. They're wearing blue and gray school uniform. There's also a new addition, though, to this bathroom break, and that is an adult is accompanying each group. The teachers do this to make sure that all the students that make it to the pit toilets also make it out. Inside a brightly colored classroom, a group of five-year-olds are hard at work. They are learning how to count, how to be safe on the road, and not to play with fire. There is something extra that schools in this area are now having to teach these little ones not to go to the toilet alone. Four years ago, little Michael fell into a pit toilet at his school. It was made from rusty corrugated iron and the seat gave in while he was using it. He was found hours later. He had drowned. His father, James Gomabi, meets us and takes us back to where it happened.
8: When I arrived at the school, I saw Michael's hand inside the toilet. It truly broke my heart. I've never seen anything like that in my life. I've never heard of anyone dying inside a toilet. The way he died has caused my family and I great trauma. I still ask myself what we did to deserve this.
12: James tells me no one has taken responsibility for the incident. The Gomabi family have taken the government to court over Michael's death. Here in South Africa, access to proper sanitation is a basic human right protected by the Constitution. And yet, pupils in nearly 5,000 schools across the country are still forced to use pit toilets such as these ones and some even worse. And so communities are worried that they've become another tragedy just waiting to happen. But change is coming, even if slowly. A four-hour drive from Bulugwani, a township, is the proud home of a new model of government schools. They come with state-of-the-art facilities and a new safety feature, toddler-sized toilets. The Education Department's Elijah Mslanger hopes they will be the answer to South Africa's pit latrine crisis.
2: You see, the, the toilet uh, seats are those smallest that you can find, and the water basins as well are very low for their age. But we have, of course,
12: had a couple of incidents in government schools here in South Africa where two learners drowned inside a pit, toilet. Why has it taken so long for the government to roll out such facilities?
2: We've been working on this for, for some years now, but of course the education system keeps on growing. The demand for space in our schools is increasing every year. We have built over 200 schools of this type all over the country, in rural areas mostly, because that's where the challenge is most felt. We continue to do so. But uh, the learners that are still waiting, to them, life is not fair because they don't have what they see other kids in other provinces have.
12: But for James, who is fighting for change in his community, no children in South Africa should still be forced to use these shoddy facilities. He doesn't want another family to know the pain that still haunts them so many years later.
1: And that report was by the BBC's Pumza Fisani. But right now it's time for the news headlines.
0: Madagascar's president has named a senior official currently working at the UN Christian Antisei as the next prime minister. Zimbabwe's ruling ZANU-PF party and the opposition MDC alliance have both called demonstrations in the capital Harare on Tuesday. And an opposition coalition in Ivory Coast has rejected any prospects of a third term for President Alison Ouattara. Channel African News, I'm on Elin
4: are you interested in generating business leads networking forming new partnerships and igniting growth opportunities then you will be interested in the vision 2030 summit themed skills economic growth and investment the summit takes place from the 20th to the 21st of june at emperor's palace in ekerule south africa speakers include bonang mohale tzidi somatuna no Gina, Logina, Sai Mamabolo, Kanyisele Koyama, and Risenga Malulega. Space is limited, but there is still time to book seats now at vision2030.co.za. That's vision2030.co.za. Or you can join Channel Africa on both days when we will be broadcasting live from the Vision 2030 Summit. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective.
1: The South African Broadcasting Corporation's new brand is about more than just providing radio and TV news shows with a fresh look and feel. It's an attempt to reposition the public broadcaster and re-establish the independence, credibility and trustworthiness of the news brand across its television, radio and online platforms. Now, this is according to the SABC's chief operating officer, Chris Maruleng, who says poor management and bad governance led to a highly politicized newsroom influenced by various individuals. This he promises is about to change, as Jermaine Kricher reports.
9: SABC News. Independent and impartial.
5: Black is here and is here to stay. The organization's news and current affairs boss, Patiswe Magopeni, says the color black is symbolic of the newsroom values we should hold dear. To her, black represents integrity, versatility, authority, and most importantly, courage. If we're going to remain impartial and independent, they actually have to commit to Mm. that. Mm. So that's where the black comes from, from the positive meanings of black that we thought of, and the meanings that we've extracted consistent with the values that we want to see in our newsroom and that we are going to use to commit to the message that we are sending to South Africans. The promise is a new look, a new sound, a new feel and a renewal of editorial values that many believe had been compromised by political interference in the newsrooms of the public broadcaster. This message, Magupeni says, is not only important for the citizens the broadcaster serves, but also for the newsroom employees. She says when she took over as head of news, a culture of fear prevailed in the newsroom. SABC COO Chris Mutterling agrees and says the new branding is not just about a new look and feel, but should be seen as a commitment to an uncaptured, independent and impartial newsroom.
13: One of the key things that has underpinned the whole rebranding exercise is really to ensure that that credibility is restored, the reputation that everyone has been talking about that was affected by our recent checkered history needs also to be addressed. So the branding exercise is not just about the look and feel, but it's actually about repositioning the credibility, the trustworthiness, the independence of the news brand so that we can regain these higher audiences that we have lost in the past due to this demand reputation.
5: says the rebranding of news is representative of broader structural changes and ideological shifts happening at all levels of the SABC.
13: So it's not just the news. It's actually saying that this independence and independence of thought, creativity must define what the SABC's future is about. Because remember, we are ultimately operating in a space that has become increasingly competitive. Our failure to restore credibility, to restore this independence of the SABC brand, not just news, will result ultimately in us uh, further sliding backwards.
5: This, he says, is why the rebranding is more than just a new logo.
13: What we're saying about the brand right now is that it's going to be a lived experience where we want the best people telling credible news, going back to basics, ensuring that ultimately in everything that we do, that this lived experience of being impartial and independent is something that is fused into the culture of the newsroom, of the SABC, so that ultimately the beneficiaries of this are the people of South Africa.
5: Magapeni says the new tagline of impartial, independent really encapsulates the mandate of the SABC. We serve South Africans that have a wide range of interests, Mm. and therefore we cannot afford Mm. to take a position. We are required to provide a plurality of voices. So it's not about us and whether we like the voices that are in the stories or not. It's about the South African Mm. citizen and what they expect of us. And the fact that we've decided to go out there and say we are independent and impartial, we want the South African citizen to hold us to account. The fresh look, sound and feel will be rolled out across SABC platforms over the next week. I'm Jermaine Kricher in Johannesburg.
9: SABC News. Independent and impartial.
8: South Africa, it's here, the inaugural Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. It's a global celebration of Soweto from Thursday, June the 14th to Sunday, June the 17th at the the state-of-the-art Soweto Theatre Festival Complex. Featuring a curated fusion of international and South African superstars, all sharing the same stage. A Grammy award-winning artists like Deborah Cox, the Neville Brothers, Raheem Devon, and first time ever in South Africa, R&B legend Charlie Wilson. South Africa's most celebrated voices are Zama Jobe, Lady Zama, Mikasa, Kayam Tetwa, Nasty C, Shoma Majorzi, Major League DJs Rico Love, Gordon Chambers, and many more. The Soweto Gospel Choir, Leanne Lamini, and Reggae Superstars, Third World, and many more. Come experience the jazz greats Bob James, Spiro Gira, Irvin Mayfield, Marion Meadows, and Ernie Smith. Tickets are on sale now at Web Tickets and the Soweto Theatre Box Office, or online at sowetotheatre.com. For more info, log on to www.sowetoijf.com or hit us up on social at SowetoJazzFest. For more information, log on to www.sowetoijf.com or hit us up on social at SowetoJazzFest. A celebration of the most amazing music, culture, and people. The Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. Thursday, June the 14th to Sunday, June the 17th at the the state-of-the-art Soweto Theatre Festival Complex. Get your tickets now!
1: Grammy Award-winning South African group, Ladysmith Black Mambazo, have concluded their Nelson Mandela Centenary celebrations with three consecutive performances in the capital, Pretoria. Now, music fans were treated to a two-hour-long Estatamiya live music show each evening since Friday at the City State Theatre over the weekend. President Cyril Ramaphosa attended last, the last day of the event on Sunday. Now, Fanuel uh, Shuma reports.
11: Saturday.
0: As we were also coming here, we actually listened to one of their um, CDs. I like the song that they were playing just now because I danced.
14: South Africa's leading Isicathamiya music group is touring the world to celebrate Nelson Mandela's centenary. The group was one of the late former president Nelson Mandela's favorites. In 1993, Lady Smith Black Mambazo accompanied Mandela to Oslo in Norway when he received the Nobel Peace Prize and also performed for him during his inauguration. Their three-day performance in Pretoria was described by fans as an outstanding event. That's about
2: it. The
11: performance was great. I like that one of homeless
9: it was a really uh, great impression for us as we have heard them for the first time. So we're very curious uh, to come here and uh, give it gives you a very special feeling.
14: Very nice. Um,
1: I'm really enjoying myself at the moment. I
14: wish we can stay over the night because um, look, this is very stunning. The group's leader, Albert Mazibuko, says the event reminds them of some of the songs that Madiba loved and danced to during their performances. But the one that I think is very important because it also tells his story. It's called Long Walk to Freedom. That one tells the whole story about his struggle until he was inaugurated as a president. Oh, he sang, "Yes, yeah, salute to all Long way, long way. Let's read him. Long walk to freedom. Oh, he loved it. And then every time when we sing that, he just climbed up from the stage and sing and dance with us. I remember in England. State President Cyril Ramaphosa attended the last day of the group's performance. He commended them for being good ambassadors. So, the fact that we have a product like Ladysmith Black Mambazo is a cause for us today as we received and saw their five Grammys to celebrate. So to, tonight, this afternoon, we are truly celebrating them because they've exported the country. They are far better than the gold, the diamonds, the platinum, the, the wine that we export. They are the real thing. They are the real thing. The group first came together in the early 1960s under the guidance of its founder, Professor Joseph Shabalalam. The group is also working on discovering fresh talent during their program called Ladysmith Mobile Academy.
1: <laughs>
14: Fanuel Shuma, SABC News, Pretoria. <laughs>
4: are you interested in generating business leads networking forming new partnerships and igniting growth opportunities then you will be interested in the vision 2030 summit Themed skills, economic growth, and investment, the summit takes place from the 20th to the 21st of June at Emperor's Palace in Ekurhuleni, South Africa. Speakers include Bonang Mohale, Tidiso Matuna, Nomalungelo Gina, Saimamabolo, Kanyisile Kuyama, and Risenga Malulega. Space is limited, but there is still time to book seats now at vision2030.co.za. That's vision2030.co.za. Or you can join Channel Africa on both days when we will be broadcasting live from the Vision 2030 Summit. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective.
7: Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. (laughs) You know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy.
11: And as long
6: as
8: we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice.
9: Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9am, with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11, as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time, 1000 African Voices, with me, We see on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from an African Perspective.
1: It's 17.45 and we're standing by to let us in on a bit of what's happening on the world of economics.
2: Good afternoon. Thanks, uh, Samora. We're starting off about uh, traffic, uh, an Air Traffic Navigation Control Organization, a meeting in Durban, South Africa, over the next four days to come up with uh, tangible plans on what needs to be done in, in the South Atlantic and Indian Ocean regions to be part of the global air traffic control system that's to be used by the year 2020. Bonnie Dibate from the Civil Air Navigation Services Organization says they've drawn up a guide for the seamless automation of air traffic control. One of the aims is to ease air traffic congestion on the crossing between Africa and Europe. Jeffrey Machoba from South Africa's Air Traffic and Navigation Systems explains that uh, previously flights from South Africa to Europe were handed over manually to Botswana.
14: After you put the phone down, uh, another traffic is going to Botswana, you call again. And we agreed that probably let's coordinate three aircrafts. But because of the distance from Johannesburg to Botswana, uh, before you even call Botswana the aircraft, it's already hitting the boundary. So the issue of silent handover is critical, where the system interoperability should enable Botswana to see traffic that is coming from from Johannesburg into their airspace.
2: Dibate says uh, some African countries lag behind in infrastructure and training. She says North American and European systems are more advanced than Africa's. They are African countries with advanced technical infrastructure, but this is sparsely distributed. Debate says uh, Africa's air tra- uh, safety records have improved over the past few years thanks to regional training centers that has been set up in South Africa as well as Western and Eastern Africa.
7: We, we we send each other's um atc's uh, engineers technicians to each other's training schools to uh for to to focus on uh, on on the training so it, there is an a, a, an effort which is placed on that by uh, the whole industry
2: Kenya Airways is close to winning approval to run the country's main airport in Nairobi, looking to copy a model that has uh, enabled drivers to overtake it. The loss-making airline has uh, proposed uh, forming a special papers vehicle with state-run Kenya Airports Authority, allowing the airline to run Jomo Kenyatta International Airport for a minimum of 30 years kenya airways which is owned 48.9 percent by government and 7.8 percent by air france klm had two billion u.s dollars of debt restructured by government and shareholders last year and it's planning new routes as it tries to recover from years of losses credit insurance have decided to withdraw insurance over for cover for South African retailer Steinhoff International loans. Steinhoff, whose retail chains include Britain's Poundland, Matras Firm in the US, Conforama in France, has been fighting to recover from the fallout from accounting irregularities discovered in December. Steinhoff's Austrian furniture retailer, Kika Layana, had uh, faced one of the biggest problems within the group but said in January they secured enough cash to see it through the year. But international credit insurers uh, decided on Friday to withdraw insurance cover for Steinhoff's loans against the risk of default from Monday onwards. Mining company Emerson has raised 8 million US dollars by issuing 200 million shares to develop a potash project in Morocco as the company resumes trade on the London stock market. Potash prices collapsed two years ago but have begun to recover after the crash led to mine closures limiting supply. The project's advantages include shallow, cheap-to-exploit resources and a location in Morocco where demand for potash is expected to climb and access to Europe and other major markets is straightforward. Financial indicators say the dollar at 9.84, Petranapula 10.28, Zambian Kwacha trading at 74 pence to the British pound and 85 cents against the euro. In BRICS currencies, the dollar is at 3.76 Brazilian real, 62.16 Russian ruble, 66.78 Indian rupee, 6.41 Chinese yuan, and 12.6 South African rents. Commodities now. Gold is at $1,293. Platinum, $889 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is now at $76.55 per barrel. That's your economics news right now.
1: And now it's time for your sports with Musibodi Makura.
7: Good evening sports fans and starting off with tennis news. Serena Williams has pulled out of the French Open before her fourth round match with Serena, uh, Maria Sharapova because of an injury that affected her serve. Now the 23-time Grand Slam winner recently returned to tennis after giving birth to her first child but looked in good form in her opening matches. Now, Williams said she first felt the problem during her third round win over German 11 seed Julia Torres on Saturday. She played in the doubles match with sister Venus on Sunday saying she wanted to try to manage the problem before her match with Sharapova. Now Williams said that she will have an MRI scan in Paris on Tuesday and will stay in the French capital at least until the extent of her injury is clear.
11: Unfortunately I've been having some issues with my pec and my pec muscle and unfortunately it's been getting worse to a point where Right now I can't actually serve. So I'm going to get an MRI tomorrow. Um, I'm going to stay here and see some of the doctors here and see as many specialists as I can. And I won't know that until I get those results.
7: Well, Williams had worked very hard to get back in shape and was making her Grand Slam comeback at the French Open following the birth of her daughter last September.
11: Physically, I'm doing great and you know, again, it hasn't been easy. I sacrificed so much to, to be at this event, and um, I can only take solace in the fact that I'm going to continue to get better, and I had such a wonderful performance in my first Grand Slam back, and um, I just feel like it's only going to do better, and I'm coming up on, hopefully, surfaces that are my absolute favorite to play on and um, that I do best on, so um, hopefully I'll you know can continue to to heal and be able to play those events
7: now, still in Paris, saved by a fading light. The night before, there was no escape for world number two. Caroline Wozniacki, as she lost her 7-6, 6-3 in the French Open, fourth round to Russian Daria Kazakskina. Kazakskina led 7-6, 3-3 on Sunday when play was called off. It was all but over in a matter of minutes on court. Philippe Cartier, as the Russian rattled off the three games she needed to reach her first Grand Slams quarterfinal. Wozniacki had this to say about her defeat.
11: You know, she's a tough opponent. She played really well, and I think yesterday could have gone either way as well. Yeah, it's definitely not easy, but, um, you know, it's the same for both, obviously. And you just try and recoup and regroup and and come back and, and get a strong start. And I honestly didn't think I played badly this morning. I just, uh, you know, she didn't miss one ball, and and she was playing very close to the Lions, and I was trying trying what I could, but it just wasn't enough today.
7: Meanwhile, you know, South Africa's Kevin Anderson threw away a golden opportunity to reach the quarterfinals for the first time at Roland Garros against Diego Schwarzman earlier today. Anderson started like a house on fire, quickly winning the first two sets. For a loss of only three games, he looked set for an easy victory when serving for the match at 5-4 in the third set before faltering to allow the diminutive Argentine to reel off three um, straight games to steal the set. Now, the fifth seed started with four breaks to serve before the 11-seeded trotzman again took control of the match, clinching the decider for a one 6 2 6 7 win. And finally, in World Cup news, Belgium coach Roberto Martinez uh, says he put Vincent Company in, li- in his lineup for the World Cup, retaining the Manchester City captain in his squad despite a groin injury, but putting Laurent Simon on standby for the tournament in Russia. Martinez says that the World Cup rules do allow the final squad to be named 24 hours before they kick off their campaign.
2: We're going to try to use the rules. Um, you know what advantage? We need to make the final outfield players' uh, squad 24 hours before Panama. That's the 17th of uh, June. With Vinnie Company we spoken very closely with Manchester City. And the experience over the last few years is that uh, Vinnie's reaction to certain soft tissue injuries, they cannot uh, describe by a scan. You need to wait a period of seven, eight days, and then you get a a good opportunity to make a good diagnosis.
7: Well, that said, it's 10 days to go before the FIFA World Cup gets underway. Those are your sports news at the hour. I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time.
1: And that wraps up Africa Digest at this hour. From myself, Samor Magesi, producer Luanda Maome, as well as the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email, info at channelafrica.co.za, or you can send us a WhatsApp to plus27763003327. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Nani Nena by
11: Vusinova.